Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm the host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Adam Briggs and Dan Matier about their paper, Updated Strategies for Making Regular Contact with the Scholarly Literature. Adam is an assistant professor of psychology at Eastern Michigan University, where he directs the Behavior Analysis Research Laboratory. He's published over two dozen peer-reviewed research articles and book chapters and serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and our very own Behavior Analysis in Practice. Dan is a faculty member at the Children's Specialized Hospital and Rutgers University Center for Autism, research, education, and services. Dan has published over 30 peer-reviewed articles and serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and Behavior Analysis Research and Practice. I really enjoyed my interview with Adam and Dan about their paper, and I'm excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Adam Briggs and Dan Matier. Hello, Adam and Dan. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. We're excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having us. I feel really grateful to uh, uh, join the podcast and disseminate our paper about how to access and stay in contact with the contemporary literature. It's kind of pretty meta if you think about it, actually. Yeah, definitely. Great to be here. So before we jump into the paper, we always like to hear a little bit about our guests. Would, would each of you mind telling me a little bit about your background in behavior analysis and, and what you're currently doing in the field? Sure. So um, I uh, was fortunate enough to stumble into behavior analysis as an undergraduate at uh, Western Michigan University. Um, and uh, from there, went on to pursue a master's uh, degree in uh, applied behavior analysis and developmental disabilities at the university, or Auburn University in um, Auburn, Alabama. And um, at that point, uh, had some opportunities to supervise and, and, and work with students and really realized that my passion was in training, supervision, and uh, also in kind of doing the research and, and uh, uh, applying that with our clients. So then I went on to pursue my PhD at the University of uh, Kansas uh, under the mentorship of Dr. Claudia Dozier. And then uh, following that experience was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to go on and continue to uh, train under the mentorship of uh, Dr. Wayne Fisher and my and a postdoctoral kind of research fellowship at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, Monroe Moyer Institute, um, which is actually where I met uh, Dan Matier. And, um, and now I'm currently an assistant professor of psychology at uh, Eastern Michigan University. Yeah, and I, uh, I went to a small undergrad called Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. 
where I worked with Dr. Tom Berry, who uh, had studied under E. Scott Geller, looking at traffic safety and behavior analysis. Uh, I explored different options for master's programs and ended up in Omaha, Nebraska, of all places, uh, working with Wayne Fisher and Brian Greer there, where I met Adam, as well as uh, my better half, Dr. Catherine Peterson. Not sure which one's better, Adam or Kate, but we'll we'll let them fight it out. Uh, and then we were asked to come to New Jersey um, to replicate our clinics uh, for severe uh, destructive behavior and for intensive feeding uh, problems here in Somerset, New Jersey. Uh, so we're assistant professor at uh, at Rutgers University as well as BCBADs for Children's Specialized Hospital. I think we could have a. Uh a whole episode talking about setting up severe behavior clinics. Adam and I have talked a little bit about that before, but we'll stick to the topic at hand here, which is contacting behavior analytic research literature. Why is this an important topic? What, what, why should people care about this? What drew you to this topic? Yeah, great question. I um, So kind of the origin story uh, of this project, and as you all are, know, this is an updated version of uh, uh, original publication by uh, Jim Carr and, and myself. Um, and uh, originally, these kind of strategies were presented from Jim uh, in one of our kind of ABA courses when I was at Auburn University uh, stu uh, studying with him. And he presented it to our class because the idea was, hey, at the time, Auburn's program was a one-year master's training program, terminal master's training program, which is uh, 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 kind of crazy now that you, when you think about it, can't do that anymore. Um, but the the idea was who's preparing us and saying, hey, folks, like you're going to be leaving this, you know, mostly you're going to be leaving this academic environment. You know, we can we can give you some really intensive training now, um, but you're going to need some skill sets once you kind of go out in practice uh, to continue to stay in contact with the literature because it's ever changing. Um, and, uh, you know, we're ethically obligated to uh, know what the kind of current, you know, best practice uh, evidence based you know research uh, uh, indicates. And so, you know, he, I think, had put a lot of time and thought into uh these strategies and had incorporated them, you know, in his uh, uh, professional development, and then was sharing them with us. And um, I remember thinking, wow, this is such a cool one, such a cool way of thinking of like, hey, this is something I'm going to need to do. So here are some like a task analysis or strategies of how to incorporate this. And um, I remember, uh, you know, he was kind of presenting it and walking us through it. And uh, I, as I, as he was doing it, I was kind of, you know, one of the things was like updating your browser, like your uh, uh, so that you could easily access, you know, the, and, and, and in press articles or you get table content reminders. Emma Rezzi was telling us this, I was doing this in class, like, this is cool. And then um, I met with him later that week for individual supervision and kind of was like, turned my, you know, laptop around, was showing him, you know, that what that I'd incorporated it and was giving him some feedback of, you know, certain things too. And I think he got kind of excited. It's like, okay, you know, somebody was listening. And um, he knew that, you know, obviously Auburn was a one-year master's pro program, and but knew I had aspirations to kind of, you know, go on to potentially pursue a PhD and, you know, knew that I probably needed some experience in, in writing or kind of the publication process. And so I think he got had the idea, again, this was everything, you know, that we see here in the foundation was something that Jim Carr cooked up 
And, uh, but he kind of threw me a bone and said, Hey, you want to help me write this up? Cause I think, you know, folks would benefit from this. And so, uh, uh, as I mentioned, he had every, all the, 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 the three skills, uh, identified the, the whole barriers and solutions framework. And then I came on board to help, you know, uh, you know, put together the tables, uh, get some of the, uh, the, the, um, the pick, you know, the photos or the figures that we pre presented, um, and, uh, help contribute in that way. But, uh, and so now, you know, that was my, that was my first publication at the time. Um, and, and, uh, it was really well received at the behavior analysis and practice. And actually the, the peer review process was really straightforward. And I remember Jim actually saying, uh, uh, just so you know, the peer review process isn't always this easy. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, really well received. And then, you know, even after its publication, I, you know, constantly get folks uh, in our field saying, hey, that was really valuable. I've, these are the practices that I use. So knowing kind of how an impact it made on the field. And then, you know, since I've been in a position now of, uh, you know, coming up in grad school, training, mentoring, teaching, um, and uh, just kind of had, uh, uh, have viewed this kind of, uh, the importance of the skill uh, uh, through the lens of kind of having laid out this um, framework that, that it's become apparent to me on occasions throughout, you know, the 10 years since its publication that there's, there's these different barriers that have kind of popped up that would fall within here. And then, you know, as our, our technology continues to advance and as uh, journals continue to, you know, improve and kind of make updates to their accessibility and, and searchability, um, uh, there's updates to these potential solutions too. And so um, uh, it was, uh, I've been kind of working on putting together this outline um, over the years because it's, it's, you know, one, I'd see the value in it and I have feedback from folks that indicate that as well. And then two, see that it's a changing landscape and so uh you know the the some of the things that were presented in the original um uh, car and briggs 2010 are kind of outdated or just not relevant anymore and so there's a need to you know update those um and as i mentioned at the beginning of the uh, top of the podcast that one of my kind of passions is in kind of supervision and training and mentorship and two of the classes that i do teach at the undergraduate and graduate level are with respect to kind of uh, training and supervision. And so I assigned this article and I want an updated one <laughs> selfishly to kind of uh, assign to students. Nice. Dan, what, what got you involved with this project? Adam was kind enough to, to reach out when he was kind of cooking up this idea of uh, updating the list. And he and I, um, I like to think are like kind of uh, kings of research gate and sharing <laughs> articles with each other. Um, and something that um, Brian Greer had led when we were both in Nebraska was a reading group where we would delve into things like Resurgence's Choice, like Tim Shahan and Andy Craig's work, um, and really guide us through some of these complex articles while we were trainees, like grad students and postdocs. And I really appreciated that opportunity to have kind of a, a mentorship um, that promoted consumption of research and how to integrate that into new research ideas and to clinical practice. And so Adam and I, even before this paper, tend to share articles on a weekly basis uh, with each other. Um, and so it was just kind of a natural fit that when we wanted to update this, that we may as well get into the experiences that we had as, as friends and colleagues just nerding out on new behavior analytic research. 
yet I was going to say, you know, Dan, our friendship's kind of based on nerding out over many things. And one of them was research. And so um, I originally kind of pitched the idea to Jim of like, hey, I'm thinking about this update. And he, you know, as, as y'all know, is very busy and suggested, you know, why don't you, why don't you reach out to a colleague and see if somebody else can help you? Dan was the first one I thought of, um, just given our previous conversations and our current interactions and uh, experiences working and writing together um, and felt like it was a perfect fit. So this this updated version still follows the same sort of three primary skills in, in searching the literature, accessing journal content, and contacting the contemporary literature, but it's looking at what are the more recent barriers, what are the more recent solutions. So when you wrote this paper in 2010, I, I don't remember, was was it still dial-up back then? Was, inter, was the internet around back in 2010? I don't, I don't remember. Uh, joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's dive into it. Let's jump into the first skill and an important area looking at searching the literature. What are some of the big barriers there? Like what what do folks who are leaving master's programs, leaving graduate programs, maybe undergraduate programs who are in and around the field, what type of barriers are they running into in searching the literature? Well, you joke, Cody, about kind of like the state of the internet, you know, at the time. And granted, it was, you know, advanced, but, you know, there were, I don't think a lot of the uh, journal websites were kind of up to date or as, as, as easily accessible kind of as they are now. Um, and, uh, and, and I think we're still kind of maybe dealing with that to an extent. Um, but uh, I think it is just, you know, the original kind of ones that we identified were, you know, what searching websites is an efficient way of doing that. If you go to Java's website and try to search, it's just not an efficient, it's not designed for that. Um, and general web searches can produce false positives. So if you type in, you know, uh, you know, autism and, uh, you know, uh, behavior reduction, you're going to get a slew of content. And, um, and then the other, uh, you know, the, the main thing that we use or are trained to use in grad school is a database, uh, psych info. And, um, um, you know, you kind of lose access, you, you don't kind of, you do lose access to that for the most part, once you kind of graduate and, and uh, move on from that environment. Um, and then the one that we kind of added that we realized too, uh, um, especially as being a practitioner or supervising practitioners, um, knowing where to start a lit search and how to even begin that process can be daunting. Um, and, you know, maybe you don't know what keywords to use or what, what, what journal to even look into. And so we kind of identified that as a potential uh, barrier. Those ring so true for both my own sort of experience in grad school and, and, and doing clinical work. And then also I know, based on the experience that my students report to me, right? So they might have a client who's, you know, having difficulty with a specific academic task or whatever it might be. Where do we even begin to search? You know, a, a lot of the times my students know the journals that are, you know, relevant to our field. But how do we go about doing this in any efficient way, right? Just throwing something into psych info can produce, depending on the keywords you use, potentially thousands, if not tens of thousands of results. And how do you begin to even, you know, organize that or do that in an efficient way? And you present some really helpful solutions. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? 
Yeah, one solution that we talked about is having um, individuals who have expertise in sifting through the literature be involved, whether that's by contacting members of special interest groups um, of areas that you're less familiar with. Um, so I think about myself with like the OBM literature where like, yes, I'm a BCAD and, and I understand behavior analysis, but to find information that's really valuable to me as a leader, I might reach out to someone like Tyra Sellers or someone who has a lot of expertise in that area to identify like what are the um, the best journals to look at, the most contemporary literature um, to to start that search and wind that that range down um, into something a little more manageable. So to me, that's one of the the best ways of doing that. And then we also talked about um, the great access that um, you get through um, through your BACB gateway, where some of the core journals that you might need to access as a behavior analyst are readily available and listed under your resource tab. Speaking of that resource tab, in your in your article, you have a like a, a, a sort of an outline of what those resources are. I can't help but notice that the BACB recently updated that. We were talking about you know resources are constantly changing and updating. In some ways, the BACB kind of did you guys dirty. They waited for you to publish a paper to list the resources, and then they like tripled the amount of available journals. It looks like on there, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I actually I checked it out uh, the other day. <clears throat> I noticed, and I'll just read it off for the listeners. But they uh, they have access to behavior analysis in practice, um, uh, the analysis of verbal behavior, behavior modification, behavioral interventions. Java and JAB, uh, Journal of Positive Behavioral Interventions, Perspectives on Behavioral Science, and they offer access to the ProQuest database, which has includes Eric, the Eric searchable database. So yeah, they, you know, like you said, doubled what we reported just a year ago. Um, and so, you know, although, as you mentioned, maybe uh, 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 like didn't give us the heads up jokingly, but also, hey, you know, like that's uh, uh, fodder, I guess, for the uh, the 2030 version of this uh, data manuscript, which, you know, whether that's us or some other, you know, scholars. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's the content is constantly changing, constantly updating. And I think it's uh, uh, a great uh, sign that especially like our the behavior analyst certification board recognizes and values the importance of this obviously and uh has helped to really make a lot of these resources available and accessible perhaps the 2030 version will be that series listening to everything we say and just like has articles on the queue for us when we pull up our phone i don't know joking with the with the with the BAC updating their resources, what I like about your your article and the way you sort of list out a process of of contacting the literature, even though the BACB didn't have as many resources available when you wrote the paper, you still like talking about, you know, go to the, the BACB website, check out the resources, right? So the the advice holds true. In many ways, it's just that now there's more more resource, you have even more access, which is which is great. Are there any other strategies, thoughts, anything related to searching for the literature specifically? One of the things that uh, Dan and I talked about when we were putting this together is that we know that there's uh, uh, there's 
subspecialty areas in our field that um, uh, whether that in you, that you can contact via kind of this ABAI has the special interest groups. Um, so kind of reaching out to them and kind of getting a heads up. And I think Dan kind of alluded to that too. Um, but also again, re referencing the BACB, they put together within the past couple of years, um, uh, content um, for, of like subspecialty areas. Uh, so for like, you know, behavioral gerontology and kind of indicated some key or seminal articles uh, to kind of access. And so again, like if you're looking for a jumping off point, the BACB does actually offer some resources for folks that are interested in. And, and if, if that's not helpful, then maybe reach out directly to the, um, uh, you know, lead of a special interest group to see kind of what is current, you know, best practice or current uh, impactful papers that uh, that area is um, uh, recognized for. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I've noticed with my students, typically, if they can find just like one paper on the topic, it typically is listing the keywords and, and maybe identifying some of the, the people who sort of publish in that area. And from there, they have a tendency of having better luck finding other relevant papers, as opposed to like, here's this topic, I, I don't know where to begin. And, you know, as a, as a professor, I'm always trying to, you know, work myself out of a job, right? I'm always trying to like establish as much independence with my students as possible. And so I've sort of gotten to the point with sort of newer students, if they're looking at an area, I might go check out this one paper, right? I give them like one paper and then they can typically run from there because it's often just so helpful to find that one paper. Um, and, and, you know, I think within our field, everyone is typically so friendly, just simply emailing someone that, you know, you know, works with PICO or whatever issue that you're sort of working with, hey, you know, any suggestions for me, any any sort of major papers I should be checking out on that topic? Yeah, another thing that uh, didn't necessarily make it into the paper, but um, I've found really interesting uh, lately is our group is working on a, a paper looking at like grant funding and behavior analytic journals. And grant funding is you know, it's such a popular topic across disciplines. It's kind of the bread and butter and the foundation of, of academic and research work. And so like on Google Scholar, the like related articles hyperlink um, is really great at getting you into contact with other journals that you don't frequent um, and other articles that through their algorithms, they can link together based on citations and, and keywords. So I've found that to be a really excellent resource that I hope continues to get refined and um, revamped over the next few years. Yeah, I, lo I love that feature. There's some cool features of Google Scholar. I like I like that feature. I've even used that feature to like on my own articles to see if I'm somehow unaware of people doing similar research, which, you know, we often are, you know, often like end up finding this group that's been doing the same research for like 10 years. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. And so I actually started doing my own papers and I'm finding, yeah, hubs of people who are doing similar research. Oh my goodness, I'm reaching out to them. Um, that and the cited by feature on Google Scholar, that, that thing is so helpful. If you find a paper that is pivotal, but maybe it was in the 90s. Okay, well, what, I, what updates do we have from then? And, and sort of looking at what papers have cited that big paper from the 90s and seeing the more recent stuff. 
Yeah, I love, I, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I think this is such a useful tool that's obviously related to this, but um, like that, like in my courses, I'm assigning, uh, creating assignments, typically doing like lit searches because I think that's such a, you know, this is related to that and such a critical skill, but in, em, like really emphasizing students get familiar with and use that, those features because uh, that will continue to kind of forever uh, uh, enrich the content that they're accessing um, and being able then to, you know, take and translate and incorporate into their practice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's just such a helpful tool that just kind of helps connect things. And I really like Dan's suggestion about like, hopefully, you know, the, the algorithm will continue to improve and get better and continue to connect and uh, connect us to more and more uh, relevant content. Yeah. And I don't want to send us down a rabbit hole, but just the overall importance of the topic as you sort of talked about in, in the intro of you were in a one year master's program, even a two year, three year, four year master's program, there's no possible way you can learn everything you need to know within the time that you're in school, regardless of how long you're in school, right? So you, you have to have the skill set of being able to identify important content and essentially teaching yourself and continuing your professional development. I always say, uh, always be learning. ABL is what I say to my students. Always be learning. Uh, you, you, you can't, no matter what, stop and go, cool, you know, I got my degree. I've got everything I need to know for a career in behavior analysis. Not even close, right? You, you don't even have the stuff that is currently out completely mastered. How could anyone master everything? And then, you know, it's constantly progressing where a science it's changing, it's, it's adapting, it's evolving. Right on, man. I think like every time I bring that up in my undergraduate or graduate courses, I always see it kind of click with the students like, oh, like I'm, yeah, you're going to teach me kind of what's best and like uh, the basic principles and concepts and foundation and kind of what's currently kind of best practice. But you're also going to teach me the skill set so that I can be, go out and be independent and continue to kind of stay in in touch and in the loop uh, and also continue to educate myself uh, as the field continues to progress. We, we seem very proud that we're like a, a strong database science overall, but if we're not contacting the most recent literature, if we're, if we're not continuously informing and evolving our evidence-based practices, then this like you know, label as a as sort of a science-based practice is a little bit of a misnomer and, and a little misconstrued, right? You, you have to do the things that science does to consider yourself a science. Um, great point. So not, yeah, again, I need to do my job here, get us back on track, focused on your paper here. These conversations are just so interesting. And I think for all of us being in, involved with, with training to some capacity, just the importance of the skill, whether you're a BCBA supervisor and you're just trying to help your, your students gain those clinical skills. Well, this is a skill that's going to be necessary for their continued clinical involvement. Or if you're a professor and maybe you're looking a little bit more globally at, at sort of their, their competency within behavior analysis, it, it's just such an important skill. And in, again, in your paper, three big categories. We've talked about the searching the literature. So what's the first step here, right? Like I've got a, a, something I need to learn about, want to learn about. 
some strategies uh, on, on really looking for that. How does one go about then accessing that content? Because there are some barriers. Could you talk about those and, and talk about some of those solutions? Right. So say you successfully navigate the searching aspect, you've got the skill set, you found, you know, the article um, and, you know, you, you've got it pulled up, then you encounter a whole bunch of other potential barriers. And, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, sometimes there's a paywall to be able to access that article. So sometimes you have to pay maybe $40 to, to read that. Um, and, uh, or maybe, uh, maybe you look at, oh, I'm not going to pay $40 for that article. What's the subscription cost? I'll maybe I'll pay that. Sometimes subscriptions are pretty expensive. Um, and so those can function as barriers, um, to act like once you found it to then actually accessing it. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, Dan and I've often reflected on this is that there's a lot of journals to follow. And again, that's a strength of our field, the, the health of, uh, our field and how, how much we're publishing and how much good content's out there, but there's a lot. Um, and so kind of keeping track of all that and knowing which ones to follow and that sort of thing is, uh, can become overwhelming. Um, and, you know, one of the suggestions that we kind of touched on a little earlier about, you know, being able to kind of reach out to authors, because uh, there is, you know, authors are able to kind of share preprint versions of their manuscripts. Um, um, and that's oftentimes why they have uh, kind of author and author note the contact information. But, uh, you know, for whatever one reason or another, uh, academics and people in our field move around a lot. And, um, and so they're moving from institution to institution, or maybe they're going from, you know, their graduate training program out to, you know, their clinical practice. So their contact information is constantly changing. So, you know, that the, might not always be reliable, especially if you're pulling an article from, you know, 1996. Uh, it's probably likely that a lot of those folks have moved on from where their current positions were. So yeah, I mean, those are some of the primary barriers that we kind of identified is like, okay, you know what article you want, or you have an idea, uh, but then how do you actually get it? And how can you actually access it? What are some of the strategies on, on getting that content and ideally not paying, you know, a lot of money for the individual download or potentially the subscription across multiple journals? Yeah, so I think um, one benefit of your memberships with BACB and ABAI, et cetera, is that oftentimes you can access journals. Um, you might have to go a roundabout way of finding that access, unfortunately, but um, there are a lot of ways to access those for free. Um, one of my favorite strategies, especially because you often get direct contact with one of the authors, is using ResearchGate. Um, and or email if their email address is still uh, viable. Because one of my favorite things is talking about that research, why it's important, why I'm looking at it, and having that back and forth conversation, which is just like a, a more intimate discussion than you might get if you were to walk up to someone at a presentation and they only have 30 seconds to talk to you. It's kind of a neat feature of these social media type of websites. And then one other thing that we don't necessarily talk about in the paper, but it's related to that Google Scholar discussion we were talking about earlier is that sometimes you can click like see X number of versions and there might be ones that are linked to the publisher's website that you have to pay for, but there also might be freely available versions through like the government funded websites and, and uh, databases like that. 
you know, research gate is in, incredibly helpful. I, I don't know how many hundreds of, of papers I've gotten access to through research gate. And that's someone who has stayed in academia my entire career. So I have access to most journals, most databases. Nevertheless, there are occasionally those pesky articles that somehow don't wind up on like any of the the journals downloadable articles or databases and so ResearchGate is a is a great great option for that and i find for 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 those that are listening and, and maybe sort of intimidated to reach out to folks to to maybe ask for their article if they're not on ResearchGate which for those that don't know ResearchGate's free you can, anyone can set up an account but you know, perhaps you want to reach out to a researcher. Do you have advice on maybe how to go about that, or or thoughts on why there's no need to, you know, feel like it's a giant burden, or that you know they're going to upset someone for emailing them and saying, "Hey, uh, I saw this article came out. Could I check it out?" Yeah, I and I'll, I'll speak on this at first, and maybe Dan will have something to share as well. But I'll admit, like as a when I was a student, I definitely was intimidated, and definitely was uh, didn't I didn't want to like bother you know somebody that I knew was much more uh, busier than I was, and um, and you know was maybe fearful of you know maybe coming across as needy or you know or something like that. And uh, so I I probably did avoid uh, that sort of thing. But now that I'm on the other side, uh, I realize like how much I appreciate those interactions. Um, and uh, I love talking about our work and the things that we do. And I, you know, I'm you know, very passionate about it. And I suspect that other researchers uh, uh, are as well. And so um, um, and, and, and I'll let kind of Dan talk to this, uh, speak to this a little bit more. But I think he's right in that building those connections is so um valuable um and to you know just reaching out via email and um, um you know talking shop or talking about the research um it, it opens the doors for many more potential opportunities in addition to just you know gaining access to the uh, article or articles themselves yeah i um i've had a lot of great conversations from having to reach out to individuals and i think Definitely as a, a student, you feel as if um, you're kind of stepping out of line to like cold call someone over their research. But I agree with Adam that 99% um, of the time folks are really excited to talk about their research. They're really ha happy that you find value in it, even if it's been, you know, a decade since they published that work. Um, and one of the most exciting things to me in opening those doors is that you can talk about ways of extending that work, whether it's clinically or in a research format, um, which has been one of my favorite parts about this whole process. So for example, um, with uh, Diana Perry Cruz, she did some work on um, teaching individuals how to enter field work data. Uh, which is a critical skill, and I love her work because it's very practical. Like she also published that new paper on APA formatting, which is great. And I'll probably bug her to to get that training. But in talking to her about that, it brought up one of her previous uh, papers that I think might have been like her thesis or dissertation on 
um, persi response persistence during accuracy and disruptions, which is something I'm really interested in. And so we started to talk about potential extensions of that work, even though it's been a while since she might have done that paper. Um, and that's how our field grows is to look at these kind of hidden gems in our literature that maybe don't have as much extensions. And how can we flourish that into new aspects and rediscover things that are super exciting that could change our clinical practice or our research focus? And we've got a nice organic plug for a previous episode of Batcast because I had Diana at Perry Cruz on talking about the supervision fieldwork tracker and sort of a gamification arrangement that she set up for that. So if you're interested, check that out. And you guys bring up such great points about all of this. And I think I always try to convey to my students who are maybe nervous to reach out to a researcher. The process of publishing a paper is not easy. And I don't think people are going through that process, going through all those hoops and all that trouble to not want to talk about that research ever again. Maybe, I mean, I guess, you know, there are people who are like, once they finally do, they're like, I want to break from this. I don't want to, you know, the process is so difficult. I don't want to think about it. But I don't, I don't think that that's the typical experience. I think people jump through all these hoops, they're excited about it. They did this to disseminate the information contained within that paper and want to share it. And so when you reach out, whether that's saying, hey, that was a really cool paper, thank you for that, or saying, hey, I saw this was published, do you mind sharing that with me? I think you're only going to have people sort of excited and appreciative that you're reaching out. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, you know, as y'all know, like when you go through that process and, you know, you put in that hard work and get it out there, you don't really know if people are reading it. You don't really know if people are contacting it. You know, ResearchGate offers some data and kind of some insight, which is nice. Um, but it's also nice to actually hear directly from people. And because I'm always interested in what their perspectives are and whether, you know, they found it valuable or maybe they have a different perspective or some different insight. Uh, and kind of as, you know, to allude to kind of what Dan was suggesting is like and how those different insights or perspectives or feedback on one's work can then maybe, you know, evolve into future kind of collaboration. So yeah, you know, strongly suggest uh, uh, almost that, you know, a go-to, uh, whether it's to contact or access um, uh, an article or just, you know, kind of aside is if you're just interested in the work, definitely encourage students to reach out to uh, the uh, corresponding author um, on those projects. I'll add sort of my two cents on strategy here, because I can imagine folks that haven't tried this strategy going, well, like, how do I even like, how do I even begin to like frame this email? And I'm like, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about my emails sometimes more time than I should, right? And like, how to start this, put the name of the paper in this topic. If, you, if you're, you know, asking for it, if you're commenting on it, whatever, and then just, you know, quickly to the point, I think, if you want responses, the, the thing that to be mindful of is to not ask too much, right? Don't be like, hey, you wrote this paper. Could you like talk about the analysis between like this paper and these three other papers? And it's like, well, you're kind of asking me to write another paper right now, as opposed to, hey, can I get access to this? Do you have any other papers? Because to me, that's like, cool, I can open my, you know, my literature files on my computer. I can drag a bunch and I can send you like, you know, 10 papers on whatever topic 
uh, relevant to the stuff I've been publishing. And that takes like no time as opposed to, Hey, could you explain, you know, X, Y, and Z and this and that to me? It's like, well, you know, that, that might be kind of a big ask depending on what the topic is. That's a great point. Keep in mind the uh, response effort required of that. You're that who you're contacting. Once we get to accessing the, the journal content, right? So search for literature, we can access that literature. It doesn't necessarily address the need of sort of constant contact with the ongoing literature. Because what you're really talking about with the searching and, and contacting stuff so far is if you have a particular topic of interest, right, that organically comes up or however that approaches, it's, which is a sort of fundamentally different than staying abreast of stuff that's constantly coming out and sort of having an idea of that landscape. Could you sort of first talk about the importance of contacting the literature on an ongoing basis? Because I think most people, it seems obvious if you have an issue or a topic, it makes sense that, of course, I need to search for that and find that. The rationale is a little bit different in terms of staying up to date on stuff that's continuously coming out. Could you talk about that? Yeah, uh, I think the idea is, you know, especially like searching and then accessing, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're, you're really sharp and on top of that. And, you know, for example, I actually have a folder on my desktop that's articles to read. And so as I'm uh, you know, coming in contact and, and, or Dan, you know, sending me stuff, I'm kind of saving it and, you know, putting it off to the side. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean I actually know what it is or doesn't know that I'm actually familiar with that. It requires another additional response of, you know, carving out time to read it and, and uh, understanding where the advances are being made, um, understanding, you know, what that, what that means, uh, what the implications are for the field and for practice, and then being able to incorporate that into one's practice or training others to incorporate that in their practices. Um, and so, yeah, it's, again, you can, you can be a, uh, an ace at searching and then uh, identifying articles that are relevant. Um, but really the hardest part is uh, then actually finding time to sit down and read it and consume it, engage with it, uh, identify how it's going to then affect or impact your clinical work. And I think that, you know, I feel fortunate in my position where I, you know, it's part of my job, you know, to kind of know and, and to program those contingencies for myself and for my students, things like that. But Dan and I are both, uh, uh, you know, used to be or currently are, you know, clinicians. And we know that, that you know, when you're doing clinical work, there's so many barriers uh, or competing contingencies that interfere with one's ability to sit in peace and quiet uh, and, you know, block out all the other things that need to be done at that moment uh, to then sit and read and really, you know, uh, uh, extract, you know, all the information that uh, from a, a, an article or a series of articles that would directly impact your, your clinical work. And so we understand that it's hard to do that. And we understand that there's barriers to that. And we also understand it's not that clinician or practitioner's fault that they can't do that. They're a product of their environment, you know? And so, uh, you know, understanding that and thinking about it as uh, maybe like in this kind of, you know, we'll eventually segue into our, 
our kind of final section into kind of arranging kind of systems uh, to support that type of behavior. But um, but yeah, and how important that is, yeah, we you know we're ethically obligated to, you know, know what's being published, um, know what the current kind of best practice evidence-based research suggests so that, so that we are effectively, uh, adequately and effectively incorporating that into our practice so that we are making recommendations, making clinical decisions that are based on best practice uh, and evidence-based uh, methods and approaches. And in order to be able to be uh, armed with that knowledge, you have to engage in effort to uh, uh, contact that. Uh. Yeah, just to add on to what Adam was saying, I, I'm in a clinical environment right now where, yeah, I, I teach on the side and, and that's great, but for the most part, I'm spending my days overseeing multiple patients simultaneously, training BCAs, RBTs, uh, meeting with caregivers, doing follow-up patients. Um, so I kind of have to train myself to identify those like sweet spots of of quiet and learning how to like re-engage with whatever I'm doing. And I feel like that's a broader skill than just consuming literature. I think that's just time management in general. But um, one like amazing exemplar of how to do that, and I'm sure Adam knows what I'm talking about, is uh, Wayne Fisher is incredible at like allowing you to interrupt his genius thing he's working on, respond to all the information and immediately get back to what he's doing. And I've, I've tried to emulate that as best as I can of, even though I, I might have interruptions every 15 minutes, can I use my note-taking skills and my other skills I honed through graduate school and my training to continue through this task that I'm I'm trying to achieve at hand. And it might just be a, a 10 page article that I'm trying to get through. Um, but something we talk about in the in the paper is this idea of building like a culture of curiosity. And that's something that um, Adam and I in, in our culture try to instill where from the BCBADs and other managers down, we try to emulate and model um, how to go about identifying research that's related to a clinical concern, how to search the literature with the RBTs and BCAs by your side to identify anything new and share those uh, those papers in team meetings and in email exchanges. And then I think an important part of being a, a leader is to be able to digest that information and relay it to the, the staff in a way that is meaningful to them on why they should care about this and how to keep up with it. And something that um, I love is when I'm in like a case supervision meeting alongside all the team members um, and they pose some new problem or new idea and we just pull up Google Scholar or other websites and, and dive into it together. I think that's such a powerful message to send to your your staff and supervisees that it's okay not to know the answer. And here's how you go about either contacting someone who knows that information or how to find the information yourself. And then importantly, how to integrate it into your practice. And ideally, everyone from the client, caregivers, and the staff will experience reinforcement from that whole process playing out by having improved client outcomes and understanding. Yeah, I love that. Uh, so many good suggestions within everything you guys just said. I think the struggle is real, right? Like 
there is uh, essentially a waterfall of articles coming out at all times. So it's, it's an amazing resource, but it can be overwhelming to sort of try to grapple with and how to stay up to date on that. And I, and I, I like all your suggestions. I think if you can build a, a culture around contacting it, sharing it, and caring about it and talking about the importance of it, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of clinics do things like, you know, oh, this paper came out and send it, but there's no follow-up, there's no discussion, there's no really discussion around the integration of how this is actually informing our practice. So it's like, oh, cool, you know, so-and-so wrote a paper on this procedure or this assessment process, and then the conversation dies. And if that's the culture of the workplace, why in the world would anyone spend time reading research if it's not actually informing anything, if it's not changing the way we're thinking about or doing anything. And so I like that. And I especially love that idea of as maybe a leader in the workplace supervisor, whatever that role might be showing your process. You know, I, I made a mistake in, in when, when I was supervising and getting into teaching of just giving people answers right away and not really what I call thinking out loud of like talking about my decision-making process, my process on solving it. And it gave the illusion that I was a, an encyclopedia of behavior analytic knowledge, which I'm not. I have a, I have a skill set in being able to find information. And that's what I want my students to have. Not that Cody's an encyclopedic robot of behavior analysis, because that's not the case. So going through and going, hey, this is how I'm solving it. This is the way I'm looking at that article. That's really great advice. So thanks for sharing that, Dan. If I can really quick say something kind of off of that, and I guess this is kind of getting into, you know, teaching and mentoring, but it's related to kind of teaching effective skill sets. And Dan and Cody, you both kind of noted it, but um, I think it's really important to show your work, essentially meaning like show your thought process, show how we're doing it, because I think it's maybe could be easy to, you know, quick jump to the solution uh, and provide that. But that's kind of, you know, the whole like, uh, it's giving that person the fish rather than teaching them to fish, essentially, uh, analogy. Um, but uh, so I think that's really important. And so I'm glad that you kind of, you both brought that up because I think that's such an important way to teach is through that uh, kind of modeling. And then one other thing um, I wanted to mention is the, the whole kind of uh, research to kind of practice gap and taking the, you know, what we read and translating that into practice. And, you know, again, we talk about how that's, a, you know, potentially a barrier, or if we don't aren't actively programming that into our kind of culture of curiosity or putting contingencies in place for that or creating space to have those discussions. Um, um, it's un relatively unlikely to happen or more so. Um, and I do want to mention that, you know, Amber Valentino and Jessica Juanico have been working on some, uh, I think they published something in um, Behavior Analysis and Practice a couple of years ago about uh, overcoming barriers to applied research. And I think, you know, there's, that's a larger topic, but part of that is, you know, taking what kind of current best practice uh, articles and, and research that as it comes out, and how do you get together? How do you, how do you pull or extract um, um, methods and approaches from that and change your, uh, your organization's um, approach towards things uh, to reflect those uh, updated practices? And so I do know that there are 
researchers and practitioners that are out there that are kind of doing some of this work and, and helping to kind of break down this process too. And so, again, I, I really value that our field has we're not not just focused on the the, the research and, and and then clinical work, uh, but we also are breaking down these kind of really important kind of practitioner skills or these processes that are so critical to getting the research into practice. Um, and I think kind of our, our our project and our updated kind of strategies fall in that um, um, that column as well. You guys are doing a great job of plugging all my previous episodes. So the Valentino paper on the research practice gap was actually one of the first episodes to be released. So if you're interested, check it out. I was also going to say, speaking of plugging, that uh, I think one critical thing is to keep up with the times and also respect people's time. Um, and so the idea of podcasts that can disseminate information, especially like as individuals are engaging in other activities like driving to work, you know, like those 30 minute periods, hopefully <laughs> not longer than that, of a commute where you could listen to a podcast and digest that information, have experts walk through that information, I think is, is really cool. And Adam and I were um, texting back and forth uh, before recording this because there was a kind of interesting uh, thread going on LinkedIn and we stumbled upon an individual named Matt Harrington who has like the behaviorist book club website where it looks like they kind of go through um, articles that get published in, in Java and other uh, journals and walk through like the implications of those papers. And I think that idea of taking uh medium like the podcast or videos etc and finding a way to accurately uh, describe the, the implications of the findings especially if you could highlight how individuals have incorporated that into practice to improve client outcomes I think is a really cool uh, direction for the field to go in yeah thanks for bringing that up Dan and uh I think it makes sense that we're plugging a lot of stuff because that's kind of the purpose of this paper, but also the purpose of a podcast is to kind of aggregate all of this information uh, in a consumable manner so that those, like you said, Dan, in 30 minutes can be immediately connected to all these potential resources or additional articles or podcasts or, you know, uh, research lines that folks can immediately kind of tap into. So it's cool. I, I like that we're kind of, you know, trying to do that. And I, I do want to kind of, you know, Cody, I appreciate you and behavior analysis and practice for kind of putting this out because I think this is perfectly in line with, you know, um, some of the recommendations are uh, that we offer and also just kind of want to give a shout out to you know the behavioral observations podcast and Matt Sicoria and then also ABA Technologies is doing some really cool podcasts with their operant innovations uh series with uh Shauna Costello and then also I want to plug this uh upcoming podcast uh series that uh, uh Linda LeBlanc is going to be hosting called uh Research Spotlight and so she's taking you know articles that are published inviting those authors on similar to what the format that you have Cody and getting it out there and I think that these types of formats are so important and uh, are in line with you know uh, contacting the literature in a way that like you were saying Dan uh, the, the person that might not have the time or ability to access these articles um, it's it's making it available to them in a, in a really efficient and consumable manner. 
Absolutely. Thanks for sharing all those resources. You guys kept saying 30 minute podcast. So now I'm getting self-conscious about our, our time today. Uh, and so we'll get toward wrapping things up in a moment. Yeah, I think that the podcasts are obviously a great resource. You know, they're not the end all be all right. And so as a, as a podcast, host, I understand the limitations of what people can learn in a podcast, right? So like, people listening to a podcast episode are not competent to necessarily do what is talked about in in, in the podcast episode. And I think that that's very important. And and for those reasons, I'm always directing our listeners to always check out the original source, check out the article, check out the articles that informed that particular paper. Uh, Because that's important, right? This is a step. This, I think of podcasts is in some way sort of dipping your toes in the pool and and started getting an idea of the lay of the land, but you know, you need to continue and and get more information on that. And yeah, there are a lot of great resources in those areas and book clubs. Also, I think whether that's an article sort of club or sort of a proper book club, so important. I am, I am, I'm really into book clubs. I'm always trying to start them. And I always recommend my students leaving, try to start a book club at your, you know, your, your clinic that you go work at, like try to create that culture of we're reading stuff. We're continuously developing in addition to obviously going to conferences and all of that. And sort of tying back into our conversation here, we've talked a lot about solutions. We've talked even about sort of uh, systems level integration, any other sort of, thoughts, comments on, on establishing that within, within sort of practice and professional development. The other thing that um, Adam and I were talking about recently is uh, there's the concept of the Matthew effect based on the Bible of like the rich get richer. I think that holds true to staying in contact with the literature where if a new issue arises with, um, with a patient or client, um, if you've kept up with the literature, it's much easier to find new things that might be unfamiliar to you or that might have developed since you've last kept in touch with that core um, situation that you've just encountered. So I just encourage um, folks that though it might be daunting to step your foot into this arena, that it'll pay off to keep up with uh, staying in contact with the literature because it makes it much easier to digest new information and integrate new findings into your existing care. That's such a great point. And I think as we've been talking about throughout, this is a skill set, right? Like whether it was targeted in your graduate training program or not, this is an essential skill set to be able to get into the literature, consume it, understand it, and, and hopefully disseminate it to your coworkers and your supervisees. And just to emphasize that point again, you're exactly right. It is a skill set. And regardless of whether you learned it in grad school or not, uh, you probably learned some pieces of it, but you will cont- it will continue to evolve and you'll continue to learn how to be more efficient or you'll continue to learn and adapt to new strategies based on the available technology and the format, you know, that information is coming uh, at you in. Uh, so it's a, you know, like we're forever students in this, in, in, our, in our field, um, but also in kind of, you know, the skills sets that r- allow us to access the content as well. Yeah, absolutely. I suspect it can be a little overwhelming at first, but once you get fluent in it, 
it really becomes second nature. I mean, the amount of time that it takes me really to find a handful of articles on any given topic is not all that long now. When I was in grad school and first starting to do this, it would take me, you know, potentially hours. It's, it's honestly really a matter of minutes what, with the amount that I'm doing, depending on the topic, right? I mean, some more than others, but it's an important skill. And, and so for those that are sort of looking at developing that skill, it's just, you have to practice it. What I did in grad school and my students always kind of roll their eyes at me for saying this, because I'm always kind of pushing them to do it, is on Saturdays, I would pick a given topic that wasn't being talked about in my classes. And I would essentially practice this skill. And I would do essentially lit reviews on given uh, any given topic. And I do maybe a couple on a Saturday, take me hours to do it. But by the end of grad school, I had a sort of learned to accumulate so much knowledge, but also was just so efficient at being able to identify information. You know, do people want to give up their Saturdays doing it? Probably not. So maybe you can carve out a little bit of time during the week or something like that, but it's, it is helpful to practice. That's really admirable, man. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate you sharing that too. Um, I, you know, when I hear that, I think of like, well, something about that must've been reinforcing, you know, that for you to continue to do that and, and maintain that skill, you know, and, and, and allocate time towards that on, on your weekend. Um, and I, but I think that it is true because I think that once you are, and I, maybe this is me just being a nerd, but like, it is so reinforcing to find once you are engaging in the search activity or you've set up systems that maybe push, you know, content to you uh, and you find an article, like I get excited or I, I get like to the point where I am reaching out to Dan or, you know, and sharing it with him like, hey, have you seen this yet? And so there is, there are reinforcing uh, uh uh, qualities and aspects related to engaging in this skill set, at least for myself, and I suspect though others uh, uh, will feel the same. Definitely, yeah. You know, make make a peer group where you feel like you can share that stuff because you know sharing is sort of happiness multiplied, right? So when I'm finding cool article and I'm super geeked out about it, like oh, I found this thing, I, you know, I didn't realize it existed, and getting to share that with a friend, like look at this, like this can help us with X, Y, and Z it's just, you know, then they're excited and then it sort of typically creates another chain and then everything like that. And so, yeah, uh, great conversation, great suggestions along all these lines, uh, super important topic. I wish we could spend all day talking about it, but trying to keep things short, you guys are saying 30 minutes. So maybe I have to start carving down the length of my episodes a little bit here. So thank you both for joining Real quick, uh, and uh, maybe I know I know you're trying to wrap things up, but um, one of the things that Dan and I kind of also want to kind of just mention and throw out there is that what we noticed with the original kind of Car and Briggs publication is that it did generate a lot of like spinoff uh, uh, articles and and evaluations. And um, so, for example, like the Journal Club by Parsons and Reed, 2011, you know, automatically automatic. Um, Automating lit searches with RSS feeds and Google Reader by Dubuque, uh, 2011. Um, uh, evaluating behavior analyst lit searches by Nicole Bank and colleagues in 2022. So it was kind of cool to see that. And then, like based on kind of some of the call to action type items, you know, you the uh, it illuminated some of these issues in our field. 
Um, and, you know, as we already mentioned, the BACB offering access to more and more content, more journals of kind of adopted strategies to make their content more available and easily accessible. And so like we've seen progress uh, uh, because this one kind of topic had to kind of really illuminate what some of these barriers are. And um, um, our hope is that kind of like our, our updated will kind of reintroduce maybe new, a new generation to these, uh, these current barriers, some of the current solutions, but also, you know, might produce some of the same ideas or follow-ups or extensions. And I think um, there are extensions that are maybe uh, needed, you know, to extend these methods to, for actively engaging in professional development activities to acquire knowledge and skills related to cultural responsiveness and diversity and maybe best practice supervision, mentorship, and training models, because we're now we're in a really fortunate position where there's a lot of content being uh, put out and uh, on these topics. And it's important for us to stay in contact and up to date and put ourselves and create contingencies to, to learn these skills and, and keep up to date with them. So I think that those are some ideas uh, that I think that potentially we see this paper introducing to kind of a new generation. I don't know if Dan, if you have anything else that you want to contribute. Uh, no, I think that's a really good point that I know you and I had talked about previously is that a lot of these um, pieces that we're suggesting are just suggestions. We, you know, we base it on our experience, but there could really be some empirical work done on how best to arrange this. And I think especially like the, the culture of curiosity and the systems level piece, like how can you have data to show why clinicians who might have such uh, intense client loads, um, what can they present to their supervisors about why they ought to take a similar approach as to what's discussed in these, um, in these papers about keeping in touch with the literature. So I hope additional uh, research is, uh, comes off of this work and shows why it's important to, to adhere to this, especially as it relates to, um, to changing client behavior. So if there's a way to show, even if it's just like a series of uh, case reports, just a string of them showing this is from, a, from various researchers, this is where we've found re relevant literature that we weren't aware of and how we integrated it into practice, describing that process for other clinicians, I think even something like that could be super valuable. Thank you both for sharing it. In many ways, very meta here, because you, I think what you're doing is modeling what people should be doing with research articles they come into contact with, which is understanding they may not fit perfectly within you know, the, the needs of my client or the, my clinic or whatever. It's not about following things in this prescriptive manner of it's exactly this. So you know, uh, Adam and Dan talked about this in their paper. So this is the only model of doing it. No, it's, these are ideas. These are suggestions. These are things to incorporate and to consider. You know, I have sort of a very particular process I tend to follow, which is different, but very much follows and hits the, the pillars of what you're talking about. When I, you know, have a, an issue that I'm trying to learn more about, or my students are, I typically tell them, check out the white book or check out a book. Is there anything there? And it's not because those books have everything they need to know, but they tend to have the keywords. 
So then it's like, okay, now take the keywords. I tend to have them search it in Java or one of the main journals. And as you guys talked about, those search engines are a little clunky, but you can tend to find like one article, which then gives you the good stuff. And then you can search it and build it out from there. Maybe not the most efficient process, uh, but it's a process and it's sort of an empirical question as to what is actually the most efficient process of doing all of this. And part of it is exploring and then hopefully inspiring future research on the topic. So really appreciate the, the resources you, you both constructed to, to, to write this paper coming onto the show to talk about it and giving us your time. So, so thank you so much. And real quick, I know you're kind of worried about the 30 minute thing. <laughs> but, uh, maybe we can think about it as like 30 minutes one way and then 30 minutes back, they can finish the entire That's episode. right. That's right. Yeah. So pause, you know, wherever you need to and pick us back up on your way home. Well, thank you both for coming on the show today. Thanks, Cody. Thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Farron. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. 